Jeremy, this week my health headline is uh, pretty heavy. Is is that cool with you? Yeah, heavy for me or the listener or everybody involved? I think everybody involved, but that's okay. I think we make things lighter sometimes when we talk about heavy stuff. So I think we can do it. Yeah, I think we I mean, can do I think hard we things. reflect real world. I don't think everything that we want to talk about is going to be all sunshine and roses. <laughs> it's not all LED light masks. <laughs> Yeah. Wouldn't it be great, though? I know. Well, we gotta, we got to balance it out a little bit. Here's what I want to talk about. I came across an unbelievably impactful article in The Guardian. It was uh, written by Christina Franju. I think I'm saying that right. And it was titled, U.S. Surgeons Are Killing Themselves at an Alarming Rate. One Decided to Speak Out. Wow. Does that title resonate with you at all? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it. it I mean, it's very impactful title i can see why a why you would click on that i can see why b it would get a lot of clicks um uh, in general i think you know we've talked about physician burnout on this podcast Mm -hmm. before i think it's an interesting topic because i think a lot of times there's maybe not a lot of sympathy for for physicians and what physicians are going through i think a lot of times it's okay another physician who's complaining about their job and they get all the glory and they're getting millions of dollars and all of that is not you know, like what's behind the, the curtain type of thing. And I think from right. a medical community side of things, I feel like we tend to be a little bit shy about pulling back the curtain because we, you know, are given a, a position where, you know, pulling back the curtain can be scary. Agreed. Uh, yeah, 100%. And, and the article and the title resonated with me too. So much so that I reached out to the surgeon mentioned in the title who decided to speak out. And amazingly, she agreed to sit down with me for an interview about the article well, and her experience yeah, with mental health struggles and burnout and physician suicide. So I thought this week we could try a bit of a hybrid format for our health headlines because um, we just had to capitalize on this fantastic opportunity to speak directly with the subject of the article and to get her take straight from the source. So does that sound good to you? That's that's super cool, Julie. I'm glad that you were able to reach out and bring this person on. I'm excited to hear what they have to say. All right, let's do it. Welcome to Your Doctor Friends, the show that teaches you to sniff out the garbage and answers all the questions that you wish you could call or text your doctor friend. My name's Julie Bruni. And I'm Jeremy Allen. And we are two physicians who work at a nationally ranked practice and take care of some of the world's greatest athletes. We know that you have questions and we want to help. We want to be your doctor friends. And we're back. So, Jeremy. I'm going to give you an opportunity to listen to my interview with Dr. Carrie Cunningham that I recorded recently behind your back. Behind my back? So, behind your back, I didn't tell you. I wasn't invited? Surprise. No, you were not invited. Oh my goodness. It really was more of a, of a scheduling thing than anything else. And also, I wanted to try out this new format of, hey, this is like a little bit of our typical, you know, we're going to have a guest on and interview them, but it's also like, it's a health headline. So it's like a little column A, a little column B. Let's see if we can merge this together. Some daytime soap opera drama here on your doctor friends. <laughs> Are you mad? Are we still friends? We're still your doctor friends. <laughs> okay, good. So for context, Dr. Carrie Cunningham is an endocrine surgeon at MassGen, and she holds a professorship at Harvard, and she was recently elected president of the Association for Academic Surgery. So her presidential address at the national meeting of the AIS this year, 2023, was titled Removing the Mask. And it was the inspiration for this Guardian article that I mentioned in the intro. So, Jeremy, imagine getting up in front of thousands of your colleagues and bearing the most vulnerable parts of yourself personally. I think it took tons of courage, and the YouTube video of her address went viral. Have you ever heard of an academic, like, president's address from, like, a national meeting ever going viral on the internet? Never, Nobody listens to Never for good reasons. You know, like if it ever gets viral, it's because somebody like fell down some stairs or something like that. But it's never like because of actually the content yeah. that came out. So yeah, no, this 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 sounds very unique. Yeah, t- absolutely. So um, we'll be sure to share the address as well as the Guardian article itself, as both are extremely valuable. And your doctor friends highly recommend that you read slash view them. So, without further ado. Let's jump into my interview with Dr. Carrie Cunningham, and then we can jump back to your doctor friends for some reactions and breakdown afterwards. What do you think? Begrudgingly, I will listen to an interview that I was not a part of. <laughs> awesome. You're such a good friend. 
All right. I am so honored to be here with Dr. Carrie Cunningham. Uh, Carrie is a renowned endocrine surgeon at Massachusetts General Hospital, or MassGen. She's a professor at Harvard, and she is the main subject of this amazing article um, that came across my inbox um, through, I think it was through Doximity. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I, I get, it, it was a little crazy. As, um, <laughs> uh, I got, all of a sudden I was getting, my Apple Watch was dinging, oh, dinging, God. dinging. And it got, it was originally on just in the Guardian and then it switched over to Apple News and Yahoo News. I don't know how that works. Maybe you know a little bit better, but it, it got a little, it was kind of crazy to see my name listed with like Biden underneath me as a title. Yeah, it was, it was insane. <laughs> <laughs> that's scary. I, yeah, that sounds like Carrie. That sounds like my nightmare of of like it's it's mm-hmm. one of those things where when you're a physician and you're someone who sort of puts themselves out there, but not in that way, and then all of a sudden you're everywhere. It's like oh god, oh god, where, where's a rock I can hide under? Is how I would feel at least. But I'm sure glad I mean, you didn't yes, hide a under lot. a rock. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, everyone's like, well, that's what you wanted. I'm like, okay, that was a little intense, a little more than oh, <laughs> I was expecting. But Jeez. anyway, it is getting the word out, and I appreciate that. Thank you for having Absolutely. me. And I, and I would love to just paint a picture for our listeners about what I'm talking about. One, I would love every listener to just read the whole Guardian article. It is not that long. It is wonderful reading, and it gives wonderful context. The author of the article did a wonderful, fantastic job, and um, your contributions were, were invaluable. So, Carrie, you gave what I'm calling and correct me if I'm wrong, the president's address um, at the Association of Academic mm-hmm. Surgery at the annual meeting this past year. Correct. And mm-hmm. in your address, you got up there in front of thousands, thousands of surgeons. I'm getting, every time you say I'm like, <laughs> my heart starts going a little faster. I yes, I did. And, deci- <laughs> and decided to have your keynote speak, which could be about anything. You're an endocrine surgeon. You could talk about mm-hmm. parathyroid tumors if you wanted to. But mm-hmm. instead, you chose to talk about physician mental health, suicide prevention, and substance use disorders. And it's interesting because it then spawned this, you know, it was recorded on YouTube. And, you know, usually these types of addresses don't get watched by a lot of people. Would you agree? Yes. (laughs) Who's watching the president's address at the the Academy Air Association of Academic Surgery, other than academic surgeons? But got a lot of hits. And what's interesting to me is when I read the article, did you feel the same way? It kind of feels like a whistleblower article. Like we're looking at, I'm thinking like Boston Globe <laughs> spotlight shit. But really, do you do you feel like a whistleblower to some degree about like, hey, y'all, can we have a conversation about physician health? Tell me. It, it is. It's very interesting you say that. It, it did sort of feel like that, yeah. right? Well, it's like surprise. We're human, right? Um, and it's. It seems ridiculous yeah. to to feel. But that is a really accurate description of it. And um, and a lot of like people hiding reached out to me privately um, to talk about their own struggles, which was really um, touching mm-hmm. and remarkable, and in support of what I was doing. And, um, uh, so yes, it, it does, it does feel like that a little bit, it, but interestingly, as I, um, you know, medicine is very, as you, as you know, from your own practice is pretty siloed. Yeah. Um, meaning, you know, we don't understand how people communicate outside the new England journal and things like that. And I think, um, a couple of things, I think when you, you sign up for surgery and medicine, it's sort of ingrained upon you culturally to put your patients first, to not think about um, yourself in, 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 in responding to patient yeah. morbidity and mortality and many things. Mm-hmm. And so it's really, and that's sort of our, many physicians, that's their identity, right? That's really what they feel is, is part of their personal identity, not just their job. And so there's that aspect of it. Um, additionally, there were a lot of people doing work outside, like the Dr. Lorna Breen Heroes Foundation, mm-hmm. which I, I, I love to work with, which is a nonprofit who has um, gotten uh, a nat- federal bill passed, um, as well as m- uh, money for grants to, to look at this stuff. And it's run by Corey Feist, who's a lawyer. And it's good to have these people coming at, coming at these issues with um, a different purview and a different approach to things. And they Im- impacted change. And what did he use? Legislation. Yeah. I would never have thought of that. And so there are lots of uh, great people uh, working on this. And I think it's it's a culmination right now, especially 
I don't know exactly what it is within the health system that demands on um, the electronic me- medical record mm-hmm. um, following COVID, you know, the hospitals having financial difficulties. There's really an, an astronomical, you know, basically half of physicians meet the diagnosis of being burned yeah. out. Um, and so obviously a substantial portion of those people, not everyone, they're, they're correlated, not just directly linked, um, go on when they're not handling that well or for primary reasons, um, developing, you know, major depression and suicidality. Yeah. What to you felt the heaviest when you were peeling back the layers in yourself in this address, when you were showing people your own struggles and who you really are and cutting through all that bullshit of having to, you know, it even was mentioned in the article, a psychologist had said to you, you know, when during your tennis career, and I'll touch on that in a minute too, is never mm-hmm. let them know that you are struggling. And how apt is that still today as physicians? Like <laughs> what, what part of that felt yeah. the heaviest to you? Talking about, you know, lifelong depression and anxiety issues, your closeness to someone, another physician, colleague and friend of yours who died by suicide, or talking about a substance use disorder? Or was it all just a big giant pile yeah. of heaviness? Um, yeah. I think because probably um, there's a lot, that was a long I question. Know. I'm I, I have great questions. I'm, I'm going to try to just interrupt me and say, remember that part B? If I was up at the, 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 the podium, I'd be writing this down. But um, the... Uh, um, in terms of what was the heaviest, yeah. um, I think um, I think the expectation of me to talk about all of my accomplishments at the meeting, yeah. and, and people did not know that was coming. Yeah. Most people, I had a I had a group of my close friends in the front row, who you can hear hooting to get me to to proceed, which is great. You, that would have been yeah, you in the bunch in of the cheerleaders. Meeting. I love cheerleading. Yes. yes. <laughs> Um, and I think because of the stigma, which I'm also working, it, it's, it's something that's implicit bias within myself is the substance use disorder yeah. and is to talk about that because people really like, that's a scarlet letter. Mm-hmm. That's not me. There's that they're in a different group. I don't have a yep. problem. Right. And, um, and so that has really writing that speech, which took me months to write yeah. was actually very cathartic and a way for me to integrate lot, you know, I read 30, 40 books last year and meeting with people and listening to podcasts and all those things um, because I put my same personality into recovery as I did in everything else I do. Um, And so I learned a lot. And those were lessons that kind of were threads between the various things that had gone on in my life and not just in the last few years, but as you mentioned, as a tennis player. Mm -hmm. And I was a, um, uh, a very competitive mm-hmm. tennis player as young as seven years old, eight years old, and was playing seven days a week. I was playing national tournaments by the time I was nine, international tournaments by 11. And so it was, that was my identity also. And so that was a similarity with, with surgery. When you forget to develop, you know, what is your internal self? And we don't want to get philosophic no. here, but like, what am I without these things that can be taken right. away? Right. What am I without tennis? Um, what am I without being a surgeon? Mm-hmm. Well, those are two huge identities that, you know, at least external identities, right? Coats that I wear. Um, but I failed to develop the inner, the inner the coping mechanisms and um, things that didn't require external validation, right? Like when you're alone. Yeah. And so, um, and, you know, I, it was very interesting to me, this concept of perfectionism mm-hmm. versus mastery. And that really fascinated me because on the tennis court when I was young, I had a tremendous fear of losing. It was different than wanting to win and really become a master. It was not wanting to lose and being a perfectionist. Right. And being a perfectionist is, um, is, does not allow for mastery. And that is because you're not making mistakes in order to change. Right. In order to change, you have to, there has to be a break crack in the wall. And so with any innovation, it's trial and error. And that's the same with being a human being. Um, And when I didn't realize that until I was 50 years old, when surgery got taken away from me, I was told, you know, uh, that I need to take some time and surgery was taken away. And it was like, oh my, I felt naked. Right. And so 
I don't know if I answered no, any of the No, you absolutely did. I, no, I think that that was <laughs> extremely impactful. And, and uh, yeah, I, I love that your language there is that I failed to cultivate this part of myself. And and I think one, my response to that is, is, is twofold. One is like, is great. And it's a teaching moment even for me. And I think for everybody of our ownership of our own mental health is an active choice and is something that mm-hmm. needs to be cultivated just like any other part of ourselves, just like maintaining your physical health or staying on top of your mortgage payments and just other responsibilities (laughs) as a human being. But it also is a perfect sort of, uh, I wouldn't say defense mechanism or, or a coping skill of like, well, it's, it's, I'm wondering if there's an ownership there that's part of like, well, I failed to do this because, and that's why I had this problem. But there's also other mm-hmm. systemic failures. And I think that's a big part of what the article delves into as well, is I think that it's it's sort of the struggle between personal responsibility as we look at people in their health, and also what are the major systemic failures here. And really, the reality of the problem and the solution to the problem is somewhere in between those two things. And that's where it is in anything, you know, especially in talking about sports medicine and lifestyle medicine and and preventive medicine. And really what I was thinking of when I read this article, Carrie, is I feel like we're tasked as... I want to... Go ahead. I'm going to interrupt you because I want to comment on that because I think it's really critical. I get asked often now with, I call it the sequel and sequelae (laughs) tour that I'm giving after that talk. How do we fix this? I'm like... I don't know, know, dude. Um, And so it's a a Venn diagram, right? And, and for those that can't do any, and I, I have this little thing, like, I think it was actually Kobe Bryant who said this, do the things you can in your box, yeah. right? Like, if your box is just your family, if your box is just mm-hmm. you, then fix mm-hmm. that, then work mm-hmm. on that. If your box is like me, where I have this, I am fortunate to have this um, uh, group of people who are listening to me mm-hmm. right now, and I may not have it forever, so I'm trying to utilize it as best I can. In my estimation, I say, you know, Work, do everything at once, yeah. right? Do work on yourself. You can meditate three minutes a day. You know, like you can make time yep. for that. Um, trust that 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 will help you eventually, and not think, okay, I can't. That's that's not yeah. for me, um, or whatever it is that brings you that moment is in every mm-hmm. day. There are systemic issues, healthcare, um, which I clearly do not have um, uh, any ex- expertise in in terms of running a sure. hospital or running a system. Um, but those, um, tasks, I think people who see like, oh, I can't handle the electronic medical record. I'm so busy. I'm so stressed. And, and I'm like, okay, but if you had worked on this other circle mm-hmm. on yourself, you could tolerate that stress yeah. dif- differently. I'm not saying that's not going to cause some no. stress, but it may not cause anxiety, Understood. right? Until it goes to a different spot. Um, and then lastly, what was my last thing? Understanding and communicating the resources within your actual institution yeah. and or your house, yeah. right? Like, or in your community, right? So some people may go to temple or go to church. Some people may um, uh, have a book club. Some people may at their institution have um, uh, healthcare resources that are yeah. free, you know, things like that. So, um, but communicating that and, and ultimately all of those things will create hopefully change the culture mm-hmm. so that there is not stigma in talking about healthcare eventually change legislation nationally so that mental health is reimbursed just as much as physical health ailments. It impacts, there's no doubt in my mind or anyone's mind that mental health care impacts our society more than any other individual physical Agreed. disease. And it is physical for me, depression. Yep. It feels physical to me. So, um, and then lastly, I want to, I really want to comment on, you didn't even ask me this. I'm just going to start talking on my own. Do it. Is this, is this, this isolating substance use as an individual problem? And I said in my speech, and I use this a lot now, it's the smoke, it's not the Mm -hmm. fire. And I understand that some people, when they first get over the initial physical, if they, if they are having withdrawal and things like that and and consequences of their prolonged use, yes. Okay. But underlying that is that was the coping mechanism for something in in my belief. And this is my belief, Um, not addiction specialist, but um, and it's not an isolation. Addiction is a way of thinking. It is. And, you know, you and I have talked about this offline that working 80 hours a week, running multiple marathons over and over again, when it everyone knows when it goes from 
healthy to unhealthy yeah. behavior, right? We all really do know mm-hmm. that. Um, anything online, you know, multiple, you know, addictions there. Sure. You know, when I go recovery meetings now and I introduce myself, I say multiple addictions because a friend of mine who I see every week, we say that because it's like relationships and, and running and exercising, eat, overeating, all of those things are part of a uh, attempt to um, soothe mm-hmm. some sort of anxiety or pain that you're having. Absolutely. I, I, I'm glad that you broke that down. And I think that that explanation in that context is extremely valuable. I, I wanted to go back to the systemic issues, especially particularly, I mean, between two women physicians as well. I mean, it really doesn't, the woman part probably doesn't matter all that much, but I did find it kind of ironic that the president of the Academic Association of Surgeons, who happened to be a woman, was mm-hmm. the one who went up and was was willing to talk about her own personal mental health struggles. Just saying, I- just saying. It drives me crazy when I go to meetings now and it's a, a woman, a woman all or whatever you call it, not a man all, the opposite of a man all. Um, I get so frustrated with, and I, when I get up and speak now, I say it every time. I'm like, this cannot just be a women talking about this. This is not a women weakness, emotional sure. thing. You know, uh, this is a 50-50 joint. In fact, the suicide rate in the United States, not in, in physicians, physicians is hired in physician uh, women but in the general population men have a higher suicide rate than women so it's out there and they need to speak up as well and no i love that i think that that's an incredibly incredibly salient point to make and i'm glad you made it because you're the one that made the point on the podium so thank you but yeah Mm -hmm. the, the concept that conformity to cultural norms is celebrated in medicine as it is in many other you know, professional career based or, or you were saying like, this is my identity, but particularly in medicine, it seems very stalwart that, you know, that the concept mm-hmm. by William Halstead saying, see one, do one, teach one. And that I love in the article, they were like, by the way, Halstead, <laughs> who made this up in the 19th and 20th century yes. was super addicted to morphine and cocaine and had his own horrible yes. demons as many did at the time. Until the day he yes, died. 100%. So it, there's always pushback to change though, Carrie. I mean, I remember in the beginning mm-hmm. of my medical training when I was in med school or right before I was in med school is when they made the change to the 80 hour work week and how much Mm -hmm. shit was hurled at the younger generation Mm -hmm. for like you're you don't have to go through wade through the crap that we went that we went through and it's this perpetuation (laughs) of of you're not earning your keep and you're not earning your stripes and it's just like that with any very regimented you know um training programs and such and I get it you know like I'm sure pilots go through it too or whatever the hell else Mm -hmm. or in the military but it is interesting to, to see it from another perspective, being folks that are in, have been in medicine for a little while, you know, looking back at, at how things have changed. And I do feel like there's a little, maybe a little bit less shit giving to the younger generations about, um, you know, uh, cultivating a work-life balance and caring about and, and, and integrating into residency programs about, maybe this is different because I went to a family medicine residency and you went to a surgical <laughs> residency, but do you feel like there is a bit of a sea change in any way? For the younger people? I mean, surgery is, is the hardest, uh-huh. right? That's yes. why I knew that that audience was the audience to, to target, yep. right? They'll say, well, I had a patient die on the table, and that does happen. Yeah. And how can that not be traumatizing to somebody? Uh, but I can tell you, psychiatrists have to deal with their patients dying by suicide. Every field has their own uh, traumatic experience. Yes. So the irony, as you know, is that that's what we do, yeah. is to care for the health of other mm-hmm. people. Like, how can we not understand that and support one another? But it's easy for us. It's easy for me. It's easier for you, I'm sure, to say, okay, my, if someone came to you for help, another physician, you would drop everything. Yes. If someone said, I'm white, you would know how to handle that situation. Yep. Why can we not turn that internally? And why can't we make that more comfortable? Right? That's, and I don't know how to fix that. And that's one thing that scares me is that folks like me had to get to a crisis situation yeah. before seeking help. And I don't, that's, that's the, the part of it that is, um, I had one close, who's now a close friend who went, who I hope I helped get into recovering. Um, and she's been six months sober and another surgeon, and I'm so proud of her. And she didn't have to be removed from yeah. work and she didn't have to be, um, reported to the physician's health program and things like that. So I think it is possible but it's going to be an exception and not the rule. And I don't know how to fix that part. And I hope the people listening can can try to figure out a way to help that that transition from being an internal duress 
to actually letting somebody in to help yeah. you. I mean, it is. It's preventive medicine. It's it's preventive medicine for ourselves. And I think it's conversations like this that help nudge it in the right direction. I think it's modeling behavior like you have, Dr. Cunningham, um, and being yeah. willing to put yourself out there and say, look, I admitted I admitted I whistle blew myself and look at me. I'm right. still standing and I'm doing better than I was doing before. Yeah. And maybe that helps you feel not so alone and not so isolated and feel like, well, if Carrie can do it and Carrie's doing great and she looks great, then <laughs> then I can do it, too. And I can you know, like it is it's like it's it's seeing yourself in others that are still thriving and successful and are and clearly happy and and willing mm-hmm. to listen to that story and I so I just I think it's so important I would love to touch briefly um right. about and then we can finish up soon I would love to no I do I do I do want to go ahead I love talking to you this is fun I can do this for hours <laughs> yeah um the I do want to comment of like where I am now sure. right because Please. that's also people want to say okay well she did that what happened yeah. right yeah. you know did she and 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 that that moment coming back to work is very tenuous yeah. It's scary. Um, and so there needs to also be help around that. Like, how do, you, how do, how do we reintegrate people back into work? Mm-hmm. And potentially, maybe that's not for them anymore. I'm not saying sure. because of yeah. this, but when you, when you have that time to really think about um, what you want to do and what you're passionate about, and, and, and so that's the reflection. Yeah. People tell me all the time that I'm, that, uh, I'm like glowing. It's crazy. But that's because I have done so much work. work like hours I mean for three months eight hours a day of work and and I still go to meetings and therapy every week and meditate every day so it's it is a you know it is something that you really have to work at to get where I am mm-hmm. and I still have terrible days don't get me mm-hmm. wrong but um but I but I want people to understand that regardless of whether you get back to surgery or medicine mm-hmm. or whatever it is that you do it doesn't matter because you're in a good place and feel you have a solid foundation. It doesn't, all of that, it stops mattering. You're like, oh, I'm so scared to lose that. But when I came back, I'm like, I actually don't care. (laughs) I'm just like, all I care about is being, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's interesting that, you know, the the answer really is just like there is everything else. It's not, it's not one weird trick. Doctors hate her. It's, it's, it is, it's, uh, it it takes you the whole journey to be able to get to the point where you have perspective about it. I can imagine as such. I I would love to bring up your friend, uh, Christina. Um, who was a pivotal part of your speech and a pivotal part of the Guardian article. And clearly when we're talking about when you mentioned before, it doesn't have to get to the point where someone is in dire straits and in distress. And we don't need to talk about it for for too much, but this is clearly the worst case scenario in this situation is when when the problem gets so big and so bad um, that the people choose to end their own life. And I, I would mm-hmm. love to just hear about anything you want to say about Christina Barkley, Dr. Mm-hmm. Barkley and, mm-hmm. and, and anything I would love to hear about her. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, um, Tina was just, if you met her, she kind of reminds me of you almost. No, she's she very gregarious. She was, she was, she just like, yeah. she was sarcastic. She was gregarious. Every, like she was, she was a lot of energy in the room always. And it struck very close to home because she was a chief resident at the, at the Brigham Women's Hospital, mm-hmm. like right across town. She was me. She's from Michigan. She like went to Michigan undergrad, like, and we, you know, and we had known each, a bunch of us knew mm-hmm. each other from medical school who wound up in Boston. But, um, you know, her sister Jill and I have, we've gone on the road a little bit to talk yeah. about it. And, um, and I brought Jill uh, with me to the, to the awesome. meeting and she sat in the front row with me because I, I, I still I still have a picture of Tina on my desk at work, and um, it's such a loss, uh, and all of the things she could have done, um, and I just it it is motivation for me, and and there are three hundred I don't know what the exact number is, but three hundred or four hundred physicians a year a year die by suicide, and it's double what the the general population is, and um, I think it's that you know suicide is a it isn't a distinct event. Mm-hmm. It doesn't happen overnight. It happens over years. It is a disease that ends ultimately in death. Um, and um, people need to un- appreciate that, that it's not a knee-jerk reaction, I don't think. Obviously, we can't sure. ask anyone. Um, but people who have attempted or had plans for it um, can say that it is a long whittling away 
um, and they just cannot sustain that pain anymore. And there is a long, I in my belief, there's a long, um, what's the word, continuum between like being a little annoyed at work and all the way through. And, and of course, it's it's not just work related sure. things; it's personal issues, uh, or just having being born like me. I've had depression as long as I can yeah. remember, and and so um, I think there are a lot of different things. I think that. Um, she brings a, and the same reason, for the same reason I knew people would listen to me, you know, I have an NIH award, I, I'm, a, you know, associate professor, I'm all these mm-hmm. things. But I, be, almost despite that and because of that, what I did to achieve those things, um, this, these things happened that, you know, I, I wanted people to be like, oh, wow, she's going to have another race. And people say that. And then I'm like, and guess what? This is me. <laughs> nice. I was in rehab last year. <laughs> right. And. And yeah. uh, you're not supposed to call it rehab anymore. Sure. But, yeah. um, and so Tina is also one of those, um, I don't want to use her as a, um, like a uh, token. Her sister yeah. is a token mm-hmm. for, for this because she's, she just represents a, a group of, obviously she's very dear yes. to me personally yes. and to many other people. Um, and her, I've seen her parents recently and Jill and, and, um, and I love them all dearly mm-hmm. and I, I, I love to remember her and honor her. Um, but we need to do that with everybody. And a lot, oftentimes at institutions, if someone dies by suicide, they are not celebrated. They are, they do not have the usual memorialization that they deserve and to learn from those things, right? And, and morbidity, mortality, and surgery, we have those meetings in order to learn from our mistakes. Yeah. You know, as a community, what can we do better? Instead of just saying that was again, like, like addiction, right? That's over there. That's that small, that's a one-off. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's, it's not, and, um, yeah, it's not, it's even worse in other, I, I just went and spoke in Canada and they also have a, a huge problem with, um, with suicidality so, and physicians. Suicidality. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you ask a physician, if they know somebody, a fellow colleague who has died by suicide, I bet you will get a lot of yes responses. I mean, personally, I know people as well that within their training were lost to taking their own lives. And it's just, you're absolutely right. I think the way to honor this it's problem. 60%. Yeah. Oh. 60%. Yeah, I, I it surveyed the people in the audience that day. 60% Yikes. of people knew a colleague who had died by suicide. And if you're... Uh, grove, oh, okay. Um, if you want to really honor that and really make meaningful change and practice preventive medicine to ourselves moving forward, I think we have to have conversations like this. I mean, the article mentioned that 1973 article in JAMA, the the sick physician. And how far have Mm -hmm. we really come since 1973? This is 50 years later, uh, Carrie, you know, and I think that the answer, it might just be us having this conversation and you having the bravery to continue speaking about it and talking about your friend Tina and what what impact her life and her experience and her story has and how we can just keep moving forward to improve ourselves and inspire other people to pull other their other colleague their colleagues out of isolation and to and to I don't know come together and be creative about how we can continue to address this problem and speak about this problem and be very introspective and be loud about it. Yeah, I think the one thing if anyone listens to this is that we know when people are struggling. Yeah. We are doctors. <laughs> we know when we see a patient, we walk in a room, we already have the eyeball test, right? Are they sick or not? You just have to look at them in general mm-hmm. or have them, you know, give you their history. Um, if your friend has a divorce, if your friend at work has a death in the operating room or whatever else it is in your own field that's a serious um, issue or you can just tell um stop into their office most people are scared scared of that like they don't they want to be left alone trust me that that is they may think they want to be alone because they're depressed (laughs) but that is not the right answer and you might piss some people off and you may they may say i'm fine leave me alone because i did that for a year and a half um and i wasn't so just keep trying, keep showing up for people. All you can say is, hey, let's grab a coffee. You don't have to be like, hey, are you depressed? You can just say like, you know, be there yeah. for them to, when they're ready to, to talk, that they, they know they can trust you. That's wonderful. Very wise words. Thank you, Carrie. Dr. Cunningham, this has been wonderful. Um, and I would, I would love to have you back on the pod to talk about really anything you feel like talking about. You know, you're an endocrine surgeon. How do I help myself with my massive sweating that apparently I did during this episode? 
Jeremy, it's you and me again. What do you what do you think? Honest reactions. Well, first of all, excellent job. Even though I have to swallow my own ego because I was not a part of this interview, I think you did an excellent job, and, and you and, and, and Carrie clearly uh, had a nice conversation about a very, very difficult topic, one that she clearly has struggled with herself. Um, and, man, to pull back the curtain and just stand up on a podium and uh, unveil yourself to everybody has got to be very, very difficult. Um, I think that physician shortages have been talked about a lot. We Mm-hmm. I think, every, you know, there's probably people listening here who have a primary care that's decided to go concierge or is just yeah. left. Or I feel like every other day I hear somebody who's like, I was seeing this doctor and they left the practice. That's like, a, yeah. you know, who knows where they're going. But, yeah. you know, if we don't have physicians to treat medical problems, then healthcare is going to suffer. And yeah. if physicians are killing themselves at alarming rates or having a significant amount of substance use or depression or anxiety uh, and are unable to function and therefore burn out, it's another crisis in terms of not being able to provide care to people. Yeah. I mean, it does. It reminds me exactly of the nursing shortage crisis that we're still in the midst of in, in that happened <clears throat> during and after COVID. Um, cause people were like, one, they were retiring cause they were like, I don't want to do this anymore. And maybe I was planning on working for another five years, but not in this climate, this sucks, you know, and you're absolutely right. I wanted to focus on some of the key points that the article made, cause clearly not everybody has read the article, <laughs> you know, like I did, um, for this episode, but I just wanted to quote some things that the author had mentioned, um, one, that doctors are dying by suicide at higher rates than general population. I think that was mentioned, you know, between me and Carrie, but I wanted to really double down on that. So somewhere between 300 and 400 physicians a year in the U.S. take their own lives, which is the equivalent of the standard one medical school graduating class annually, which I thought was kind of a sobering thought. It is. And I feel like for a long time, the butt of the joke was dentists kill themselves at a high rate and people would just kind of like laugh about it. I feel like there was a Matthew Perry movie, which is an interesting timing, I realized with Matthew Perry, but he was in that uh, movie with Bruce Willis where he played a dentist and Mm -hmm. he they just joke about how dentists kill themselves all the time. And so like maybe it's not funny, actually. No, it's not. Yeah, exactly. It's funny when you look back at stuff that you that was jokes in 2003 and it's like, woof, you know, well, speaking of 2003, 2003 was the advent of the 80-hour workweek limit. So that was like right before I was getting into medical school. Um, And I recall, and I think I talked about this with Carrie, that I don't know if you feel like you felt backlash by being like the new generation of young kids that didn't have to work as hard or be pushed as hard as our predecessors. And really, it looked like it, it pushed some surgical specialties in particular, and the article mentions this, to add time afterwards they're like well okay well if we can't work people 100 plus hours a week then we're going to make them do one to two year fellowships to train in their surgical subspecialties so it's like adapt or die i suppose almost literally i remember that so so for contextual purposes for the listener the 80 hour work week meant you know previously people could work longer hours as residents right so if you you, most people listening have met a resident Mm -hmm. physician before and you could work longer hours and 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 there were concerns about the safety for the residents and certainly safety of patients if you had somebody who'd worked 97 hours and was still trying to treat you um maybe that wasn't the the best situation there were residents you know dying in car accidents on the way home because they were falling asleep all bad Mm -hmm. stuff but Likewise, I remember there being a lot of concerns from at least the surgical specialties being able, we can't have the continuity of care. So you'd have somebody who was on call overnight, and they'd have a patient come in, and then that patient was going to go to the operating room. And as the resident, you needed to be learning, right? You needed to see that mm-hmm. patient, evaluate that patient, go to the operating room, do the surgery, see what the post-op was, and be able to do all of that stuff to learn. And because of the work week, you wouldn't be able to do that. You had to go home. And so there was this balance of like, how do we still teach you these important things, but also balance these hours um and so you know th- there was no right answer i, I definitely yeah. think there was a little bit of like you guys take it soft but most of it was tongue-in-cheek i think most people thought it was kind of crazy that we were working that many hours right. anyways um so <laughs> yeah. you know i think that it, culturally speaking not even just in medicine it's always glamorized to work more i mean it's always you know how many hours did you put in and you know how, how tired are you and oh i was up yeah. so late last night like these are all just things that people say Yeah, even in like Grey's Anatomy, I feel like it was like the joke in my house between me and Adam, my husband, were like, I guess, uh, yeah, like Christina and um, Meredith Grey are having their miserable off this week about who's more miserable and who wins the miserable award, you know, and it's like, 
that that's not an award that anybody should want to have. Let's one up each other to see how how much we can how quickly we can burn ourselves out. And I do think that the way that those things change over time culturally is one by policy change, which I think was smart. Um, and it's it's based on data. And I wanted to touch on a thing that Carrie and I talked about that's that's um, delved into in the article, the Guardian article. Uh, very well. And it is about 50 years ago that landmark re- landmark report called the sick physician, the uh, and the AMA American Medical Association so declared physician impairment by psychiatric disorders, alcoholism and drug use as a widespread problem. This is in 1973 that this report came out. You know, so even then physicians had rates of narcotic addiction that were 30 to 100 times higher than the general population. And at that point, about 100 doctors a year in the U.S. died by suicide. So following this publication, state medical societies in the United States, um, you know, the organizations that give physicians their license to practice, they created these confidential programs to help sick and impaired doctors. These are called PHPs or physician health programs. Jeremy, have you even heard of the PHP? Are you aware of it? Honestly, I would say the answer to that is no, at least not in that formatting. (laughs) Yeah. Well, they have a dual purpose. They connect doctors to treatment for really anything, whether you're sick from, you have, I don't know, an autoimmune disease, but really more so for, are you, are you battling a mental health problem, a substance use problem? Um, And they assess the physician to ensure that the patients are safe in their care. So it's a little bit of a fail safe situation too. So if a doctor's condition is considered a threat to patient safety, the PHP may recommend that a doctor immediately cease practicing, or they might recommend that a physician undergo some type of monitoring or treatment, you know, for especially if we're talking about like drugs or alcohol, for three to five years in order to maintain their license. And then the physician has to sign an agreement to not participate in patient care until their personal health is addressed. And then in in rare and extreme cases, the PHP uh, can report the doctor to the state medical board and revoke their license. So these programs are meant to support physicians and sick physicians, but they still remain shrouded in stigma. And I think doctors worry that if they seek help, they will lose their license or the trust of their communities, so much so that they often stay away from treatment. Yeah, so we see this a lot in fields where... um stigma still exists. I mean, this can be seen all the way up into like, you know, professional sports even too, where like Mm -hmm. your performance really dictates your net worth. And if you're somebody who says, I am taking an antidepressant, anti-anxiety medication, does that make me less of a quality provider or less of a quality performer? You know, and in that case, should I not be allowed to function in my role versus I had the gall to say I need treatment for a medical condition that is very common and everybody can have. Mm -hmm. I got appropriate treatment and therefore I'm able to treat people and probably treat them better because I'm empathic to the situation. In addition to the fact that my own medical needs are being met, but it is nerve wracking, right? If you go in and everybody finds out that you're taking anxiety medications or God forbid somebody finds out you're taking, you know, you have bipolar and you're taking bipolar medications or, you know, that kind of thing. Like there's a lot of problem stigma of like, I don't know if I want my doctor to have bipolar disease, right? right. Which is wrong, Yeah, but I can see it. It's, it's tricky. And I think I like your example of, you know, performers or athletes and, and, and their, the perception that this medical condition may hamper their their performance but it, yeah it it does seem like there's a bit of a difference when the performance by your physician is to take care of your personal health yeah. you know yeah uh, it's tricky it's very sticky and i don't blame a lot of physicians for hiding you know um so i wanted to touch about uh or end with if uh the story of lorna breen have you ever heard of lorna breen i have not okay Lorna Breen was an emergency room doctor in New York. Um, She died by suicide in April of 2020 after telling her family that she worried that she would lose her medical license or be ostracized by her colleagues because she was suffering anguish from her work on the front lines of the COVID-19 crisis. 
So her family and friends started the Lorna Breen Foundation, um, which wants to see changes in sort of the medical licensure process and limiting licensing bodies to questions on physicians' health to just current issues and not previous mental health diagnoses to sort of combat this stigma of physicians worrying about if they ask for help that they're going to be punished. So mental health is, is, is a disease, right? We can agree on that. We've had many episodes on that. I think there's been good movement that it, it is disease and there's a lot of things that you cannot control about it. The person is not making bad decisions and therefore they have depression or anxiety. And mm-hmm. so the same way you wouldn't want your doctor to not be going to get high blood pressure treatment if they had high <laughs> blood pressure because you want them to live a long, healthy life, it should be, the doctor should be treating their mental health the exact same way. Um, yeah. And just my own personal experiences when you have a day with heavy stuff going on in your lives. And I've had a few of those recently with certain things that have been going on in my life. It is hard to go into 25 to 30 rooms and have somebody else tell you something that's going on in their life. And to make that the most important thing for you as the physician at that moment, because that is my job. My job is to go in 20 to 25 to 30 times a day and say, the thing that you are talking to me about right now is the most important thing for me because I know it's really important to you. But when you have something going on at your house, you have a family member that's sick, you have crippling anxiety that you're trying to work on, you may have, you know been part of a 4th of July parade with a mass shooting and you're dealing with the consequences of that, it is hard to be present. And I think everybody listening could probably relate to that, not even just as a physician. You have to go sit in a board meeting when you have other things that are going on. And you're like, this just feels so small compared to what's going on in my life. And I think having some perspective of that for physicians, I think, would be helpful. Um, And I think part of the problem here, and I have a question for you after this, because this is what I, I think it'll tie together. Part of the problem here is we've done a poor job as physicians as allowing ourselves to be human beings in front of our patients and in media and in the community. And so, but, but when you are, and when, you know, you think about maybe more rural towns, it's more common where the physician is part of the community and everybody knows each other. It's so much different and maybe better, right? Mm -hmm. It's everybody looks at each other like a human being. So my question to you is many people listening to this episode may not be physicians. Okay. And so you did this interview with Carrie, you saw the article, it spoke to you as a physician. I'm interested to hear your perspective on kind of like, what as a non-physician listening to this what what do you want them to take away from this what what's your summary yeah that's a that's a that's a hard one i think it really is just kind of echoing what you just said we're all human beings and we're all having an experience and we're trying to manage our own shit and you know prevent ourselves from flying off the handle or or falling into behaviors that are like coping mechanisms that are not helpful for us and using that same lens to what you would look at your friend or your family member who might be struggling with their own mental health in the same way that you would view your physician and that that relationship between the you know you and your your healthcare provider is 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 just like any other relationship where you're both human beings interacting with each other and i don't know i and i i just i think it's the i think we understand more about all the things we have in common as human beings, regardless of what our roles are as far as our professions, um, by talking about it and sharing our experiences. And regardless of whether you're a physician or a healthcare provider or you, you know, make enamel pins for a living, (laughs) I think it's great to listen to these stories, see how they resonate with you, potentially, you know... I don't know, ask people about if they want to share what's going on with them. Kind of like what Carrie was saying, like, just stop by a colleague's office and say, how are you doing? What's going on? Like, what we need to keep these connections with each other because the same way that we talked about, like, with Laura and with Rose in the past is that the the way to combat this is connecting with each other and making sure that we're not living in isolation. That's how we hopefully live long, happy, fruitful lives. And it is a... Um, a, a, you know, a controllable health behavior to try to reach out for connection. So I guess that's my long-winded way, and maybe you can edit this down so that it makes sense, Jeremy. I think that my takeaway was 
something that I try to remind myself frequently is that I never know the whole story of somebody yeah. sitting in front of me. And I oftentimes remind my staff and myself that a patient who we have seen who is very upset for whatever reason or lashes out for whatever reason, it may have just been that we were running 20 to 30 minutes late and they were very upset about it. And sure. the feedback is they probably were upset about some other things. And this just yeah. happened to be the thing that they you know, lashed out about. You never know the full story. And that is the same with physicians. You have that person in front of you. They're giving you their attention. They didn't want to be late. They don't want you to feel slighted. They don't want you to be unhealthy. And they are human beings and they have many things going on. And the analogy I think about is the musical Wicked or the book Wicked for anybody who read that and how it changed The Wizard of Oz. How if you watch The Wizard of Oz, the Wicked Witch of the West was bad and awful and a terrible person. And we all didn't like the Wicked Witch of the West. But if you read Wicked... Mm -hmm you now think the Wicked Witch of the West is the sympathetic character and yeah. the one that had a different backstory. And so getting more information and knowing somebody's whole story allows you to really see that person. And if you don't have that whole story, I would hold from judgment. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a great way to put it. That's sort of what I meant <laughs> to say. And also, like, I don't know, I guess in, in my interpersonal life, I, I felt more empowered because of people like Carrie to talk about my own stuff. I mean, I do talk about my own stuff, probably a little bit too much. But um, but yeah, to in the same way of like sharing with you and sharing with my family and sharing with my friends, I share some parts of myself with my patients too, because I think that's how you gain mutual respect. And it just humanizes the whole interaction. And I agree. I think, you know, you never really know what's how full someone's plate is. Um, and, uh, and yeah, just kind of handle people with care. And I think these conversations and hearing people and watching people like Carrie model this behavior of just showing and just bearing their, their soul out there is very inspiring. And, and that's why this article mattered so much to me and why I thought it would matter to you, Jeremy, and it would matter to our listeners. Oh, this was great. Thank you. Well, I hope you liked Carrie's story. I hope we keep listening to our stories. We love you. Listen to your doctor friends. Everybody hug each other. <laughs> the amazing music is credited to Skillcell with Pixabay licensure. The podcast is meant for educational and entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast should not be taken as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Please consult a medical professional for any medical issues that you may be having. The contents of this podcast are the opinions of the hosts only and do not reflect the opinions of their employers or affiliations. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall Dr. Julie Bruni or Dr. Jeremy Allen or any guest to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast.